0: Webflow is a platform for building applications without programming. Software engineering has been around for barely 30 years. Over that period of time, there have been many attempts to create a platform that allows for the creation of software without writing a line of code. Most of these systems have not been able to fulfill that task, and this should come as no surprise. It's hard to build an application, even if you know how to program. Vlad Magdalene has been working on Webflow for more than seven years. He has persisted through multiple failed attempts at building Webflow, and he's pushed past continuous rejection from investors who did not see the viability of his vision. As Vlad patiently worked on Webflow with his two co-founders, the power of the web browser slowly improved. V8 became a powerful runtime that could deliver the performance necessary to build applications visually in the browser the unmet goals of past WYSIWYG application platforms faded into irrelevance as Webflow came into being itself and allowed for an entirely new type of software development, driven by the visual interface of the browser. Webflow is one of the coolest, most ambitious software platforms in existence. Vlad joins the show to talk about Webflow and the future of software. We're hiring a head of growth at Software Engineering Daily, if you like Software Engineering Daily and consider yourself competent in sales, marketing, and strategy, send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Vlad, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. You work on Webflow, which is quite amazing. Describe the domain of low-code or no-code tools
1: we like to think that we play more in the no code space. And the the way that I see the gradient is like full code is the way we build software, right? Like Ruby on Rails or JavaScript or React. That's like you have a text editor open or an IDE and you're creating software from scratch. That's sort of full code or just code. Low code is when you start to augment that with visual kind of process automation or visual workflows that start to replace some of those code aspects. So one one example I can give is, let's say, uh, marketing automation software, right? Like you can say, oh, when, I, when somebody clicks on submit this form, send them an email two days later, right? Typically that stuff would have been done via code, I don't know, 10 years ago. And now we have have brought in more things that can kind of express that, that logic, that business logic in a a more visual environment that more people have access to. But low code companies typically tend to be in the like upmarket enterprise space where they're trying to do what's called like shadow IT and like entire application replacement, where it's just not possible to fully do it without code. So what they'll do is they'll say, here are the things that we've already solved with like visual tools, let's say workflow automation. When this happens, something else happens, but they'll still rely on coders to to do certain things that that sort of framework doesn't do and no code is like full on you're never writing or you're like the goal is to try to replace everything that you do in code with a declarative visual it doesn't have to be visual per se but some sort of non-textual representation of like declaring logic or ui or a database or a schema or something like that so examples of that are Uh, I mean, even take Webflow, right? Like instead of designing a database or saying like, oh, I'm going to add a column or add a row, you're in like MySQL or Mongo or whatever, those are, those things are done either through the, through the command line or through some sort of like admin interface, or you're kind of going in and creating, like writing a query or writing a statement to like add an index or, or things like that. You're literally going into UI and saying, you know, add a collection and add a field to the collection. And all of those sort of technical details are taken care of uh, behind the scenes. Or, you know, also a Webflow example, instead of writing HTML and CSS in two different or an text editor, you're visually manipulating HTML and CSS driven layout, but you're doing it through a drag and drop visual interface. So it's like a different way to think about like putting together code. Maybe a concrete example is instead of writing like, you know, div, you know, a paragraph in HTML, you would write like a P tag and inside the text that you want that tag to have and then the closing P tag, that's code. Uh, in, In a no code environment, you would drag in a paragraph and you would like physically type, like you would see that on the screen, you would double click on it, you would change the text, you would maybe instead of like putting bold tags or italic tags, you would just select some text that you want to be bold or italic and you just click a button. So that's like a fully no code way of doing something that traditionally was done with code. And the ultimate goal of all these things is just to create more software. Like, how do you lower the uh, complexity curve to get people to create the same kinds of things that software engineers are, but to do that in a language that is a lot more approachable to a lot more people?
0: And if I'm a software engineer, should I care about this stuff today or just keep my eye on it?
1: You should keep your eye on it. It's, a lot of software engineers
0: care about this stuff
1: already, especially when so for example, there's a lot of software engineers that use webflow, for example, for or even things like Zapier for like quick automation of things that they just like can't be bothered with. They they know it's much, you know, for example, let's say I wanted to do something like when somebody posts a tweet, I want to get a text message. Like, I can spin up a node server. I can spin up, like, some sort of, like, you know, background cron job to keep checking and then, like, pull in the Twilio API and pull in, like, you know, the Twitter API and do all this glue. Or I can literally just, like, go to Zapier and say you know, connect my Twitter account, connect my Twilio account, when this happens, do this to this phone number, boom. Like, even though you know how to do that, it's much faster to do that. You can think of one parallel to this as spreadsheets. Software engineers used to be like doing all the work that spreadsheets currently solve, like 50, 60 years ago, right? Like, financial modeling was done through like a COBOL, a FORTRAN, a uh, Pascal developer, right? Like, a business user would say, like, these are the calculations that we need to do that weren't trivial that you can do on a calculator. And, you know, we need to like generate some graphs and and some insights from from this data right and a programmer would actually go implement all that in code and get sort of a graph out or whatever. And spreadsheets completely, uh, for the most part, remove the need to do that. So like software engineers were able to move on to like more interesting problems because that like subset of computing is now solved by like a much better, uh, more approachable kind of interface to, to solve the same problem. So in that same way, a lot of software engineers are already using Webflow to, for example, build HTML and CSS layouts. Like it's just fundamentally faster.
0: Can you export it? once you, you- can
1: yeah yeah so it's basically an abstraction over uh, over html and css it's just like uh, dev tools so you know how a lot of developers will go into dev tools and they'll use like the dev tools color picker instead of like writing a code by hand writing a hex code by hand they'll use the color picker or they'll use like the little bezier editor or but the the key difference there is like once that code is done you have to sort of copy paste it back to your source webflow is just that on steroids where it not only saves directly back to the source but also adds a lot more visual tooling to take those kind of like act on those same abstractions.
0: How do you get to the place where it's one click export to react components? I think that's actually, believe it or not, shorter
1: term thinking like react is an implementation detail, just like HTML and CSS is an implementation detail. What we're working towards is the ability for designers and design teams to create the entire design system. And just like in, you know, like InDesign, if you think about print design, et cetera. I think most of the listeners have no idea what, what okay. InDesign, InDesign is. InDesign is the way that magazines is, are made.
0: What's a design system?
1: Okay, so a design system, actually, let me scooch back a little bit. Like the, the way that we do design is, uh, think of like magazines and newspapers, et cetera. That used to involve a lot of programmers. It was people, like designers, pasting stuff on, like it was literally called paste up. You do it with glue and and like you know, scissors, et cetera. And we had this this skill called print setters that would sort of translate that to postscript that would go to print.
0: By the way, you know this because you went to
1: art school, right? Yeah, yeah like here just down the street. And I was like, I was designing magazines, et cetera. But then digital publishing software like InDesign, QuarkXPress, et cetera, they sort of replaced that need to just do all that stuff by hand. So when you create a magazine now, you create what's called a sort of a design system, which is, you know, all your topography, all your spacing, how your grids work, et cetera, all your sort of like common elements and tools like InDesign let you create that for magazines. And similarly, web design sort of got inspiration from that and and started creating design systems for uh, like websites and web applications. And basically what that means is like, you find common patterns between, you know, like the website you want to create or the product that you want to create. And instead of repeating that all the time, like, let's say you have a, you know, a user profile, like circle with a shadow that has like the person's name under it. Right. And that appears in uh, the list of users and your login view on, you know, the blog post, like byline, you sort of use this like component everywhere and you like pull those out into separate components. And that creates kind of like your set of building blocks that you build with. So React like came out from that concept of like, how do you create these components that serve as building blocks uh, that you can then like compose with and to various levels of complexity. So React is very much like the evolution of that, of like, creating a design system but you still that's still an implementation detail the hard part is still how do you actually like which components do you need to which how do you like minimize the number of like divergence you have in those components so they you have like a unified system across like whatever software that you're building and that's why like all these teams like Atlassian and Airbnb and you know Netflix have like pretty big design systems teams that are creating the building blocks that the rest of the teams the software development teams are using as kind of like the basis of of how they they put together UIs and, and sort of the experience of how people like flow, like the customer journey through that, through that software. So when we're talking about right now, the way that design systems are created as a designer, like declares what they look like in a tool like Sketch or Figma or Photoshop or whatever. And then a developer builds the, that design system in either HTML or CSS or React or Vue. And, you know, there's a bunch of tools around this stuff, like React has things like Storybook, where you'll, Put all of your components into one place where other developers can go see and like, oh, well, we have a dropdown and we have a slider and we have an accordion and we have a, you know, this user avatar and we have a media card component. So they know like what the building blocks are before, like trying to figure out if they need to build their own. But the key critical part is that there's this translation layer. Like you go from a design file to code and you're not really quite sure where the source of truth is right you you're not sure oh like some react developer went and changed like the media card component to make the you know the picture bigger and the heading smaller because it looks better or whatever but in the design file it still looks like the previous design you kind of have like this you know you don't know whether the the code is the truth or the design is the source of truth because then you go to design like the next feature in that or the next iteration of that feature and like the design designer will go back to their design file and what they have is actually no longer a reflection of the actual application and you have this like weird divergent and How do you like solve that that's called the designer developer handoff problem right now and it's a huge problem right like designers claim like you know figma is the source of truth and and developers are like you know being lazy by not following exactly what the designer said should be uh, what it should look like developers say react is a source of truth mm, sounds and, like a
0: devops problem
1: yeah, I mean, there's there's a bunch of problems there, but what we're trying to do is not is to create the source of truth as a not necessarily in the design tool nor in the development tool, but in sort of like this middle layer where it's almost like a visual implementation tool. That's why we call Webflow like a visual software development platform, not a design tool and not like a you know IDE or a you know integrated development environment, and that buys you the ability to say that designers can now create entire design systems, but because of the way that they created them, it's already in production. They're doing it visually, but the actual components no longer need translation. So you can have a developer not even export the code, but literally import a, like via a URL or something, that component itself, all they really have to care about is the API of the component, like the props that it takes, et cetera. But the design is driven by the design system, which is driven by the design team. And that removes that need to go between like, what is the source of truth? It ends up being just like if you're doing, you know, you're, if you're creating a logo, right? The source of truth is in Figma or Illustrator or Sketch. Hearing you
0: explain this, I actually, it sounds like we have the tech, the core technology to build this today. That kind of thing could exist if we had like, you get the right web assembly engineers in the same room with the, yeah, yeah, all the building blocks are there. You can get this thing going at some point.
1: <laughs> right, right. But the, it's mostly not a technical challenge. It's actually more of a human challenge because you have these kind of silos of certain things are only possible to the developers. And developers, you know, I'm a developer. We like having this kind of feeling of... You know this stuff is only possible because we're here
0: this is one thing i've been like really thinking about and i've been uh, chided by some of the listeners who are telling me that like i'm getting like caught in the hype and i'm like no i think actually like, there's something significant that's going to happen here where like developers are doing a lot of unnecessary work and designers are probably not working as efficiently they as they could it's, it's just very hard i mean It's very hard to keep up with all the tools and it's hard to know what's possible at any given time. So yeah, it's like an adoption question. When do people adopt this stuff and what are the team roles that change? You know, like we need different team descriptions almost.
1: Yeah, and we're coming up with some of those. We call it like a visual developer, a person that's more like design and UX centric.
0: Visual developer. But they
1: learn the core, not the syntax, but they learn the fundamental concepts of web development, things like the box model. So you don't think of like dragging something and like absolute positioning. You're actually thinking of, you know, margin padding, fixed positioning. You're thinking of kind of the box model as everything is a box. You're not, you're not just moving things around on a fixed canvas. You're thinking of things in relative terms, just the same way a CSS developer would would think about it. You're not actually though writing code. You're understanding those core concepts and having visual tooling that lets you uh, take advantage of those so one example is you know back in the day when we had graphic design you know people would create logos right and when svg or just vector graphics in general were becoming a thing we didn't have tooling like illustrator what would happen is illustrators you know the people responsible for making a logo let's say the fedex logo or whatever 20 years ago much longer than that actually like 30 years ago they would actually do it on paper right? That was graphic design. Like you literally did it on paper. Then a PostScript person would go and create like all the curves, like these Bezier curves, because they were familiar with like the math and and how you define the stuff in PostScript. And that then goes as like the super high fidelity sort of source of truth that goes to the printer, right? That goes to like the, uh, you know, high quantity runner, whatever. And those developers were like pretty protective of like, okay, like we know how to do this. We know how to do like declare gradients and like Bezier curves, et cetera. But over time, the source of truth moved to like the role of the graphic designer expanded to where they were now responsible for learning some of these digital design tools, like Illustrator, where they were now empowered to like, through the power of abstraction, create that final Source of truth that, that that PostScript file or that AI file or that SVG file and tools generated that now. So it's it's almost like the role of a graphic designer absorbed more responsibility. So now whenever you say, oh, we need to do a logo update, you literally go back to your graphic designer and they send you like the the file that is like the source of truth for that uh, update. Right? It doesn't have to go through a translation layer. Similarly, I think product designers, especially product designers working in software and web or like web designers, their role will expand to say, now you're not just creating a flat design file, like an idea of what you wanna build. Now you have to learn more about the medium that you're actually creating for. And those are things like, you know instead of saying, you know creating a file that has red lines that says, here's a blue button. And when I hover over it, it turns red with like a little annotation that says, you know, it basically instructions to a developer that say, turn red when this is over with this sort of like quarter second transition with a ease in out sort of like timing curve, you're actually working in software that helps you declare all that in the native medium of the web. So you're creating that button, choosing the color, switching to like a hover state, you know, changing the color to red from a color picker, then going back to the original button in the non-hover state and saying like, this will have a transition for a background color over this time period. So that person is now basically doing the translation work that a programmer would have done, but it's, it's means that that translation step is no no longer necessary. And this is kind of like, it sounds kind of, you know, threatening to programmers because it's saying like something that we do right now is being taken away or like moving into like Our services are no longer needed but what it actually does is it empowers programmers to work on like much more interesting things that just like have no chance of being automated anytime in the future right just like those postscript developers they moved on to you know working on game engines or working on like other things that just require much more
0: aren't we over this as developers like haven't we gotten over this the fear of being outmoded no, nobody, nobody uh, it's, fears it's uh, that anymore.
1: five years ago when we were like, you know, seven years ago when we were getting started, that fear was huge right now. It's still like, I would say it's at, at 80%, like the vast majority of, you know, like WordPress developers and developers who are not quite, you know, they're like the vast majority of the job they do is translation from a design file to like a WordPress theme or, you know, kind of like making it real, bringing it to production. I think there's still a lot. Of that happening most of the work comes through like agency where you know like there's a a design team and the programming team is the one that's implementing the designs there is like from a lot of the conversations that i've had like people still feel threatened uh, but they uh, like i think programmers need help in seeing the opportunity of like how many other companies need the like this sort of uh, low level programming skill. Like we're literally facing a one million developer shortage, you know, in machine learning I mean, and AI that's an under- development that's and like an understatement yeah, of the year. but I think there's naturally, we as humans, we don't want to grow outside of our comfort zone. You know, when I was a developer and I was using Knockout and our team, you know, building Webflow with Knockout, I was like super comfortable with it. And when our team proposed that, hey, this probably isn't going to last that long, let's switch to React. I had this feeling of like, oh, you know, like maybe my skills aren't going to be that valued and I'm going to have to learn something new. I really don't understand this new like... Mental model, and it was like it took a while for me to to, to get on board with. So I totally understand that that right. like that fear and that in that pain, but I do think that ultimately it's bad for the world to like in aggregate, to avoid efficiencies that could be just much better, right? Like when spreadsheets became the de facto way of doing financial modeling, we now have over a billion users of spreadsheets on like a monthly basis, right? Whereas we only have 20 million programmers. If we still had the limitation of like, you had to do the kinds of things that spreadsheets enable you to do to have a programmer, like we wouldn't have entire companies created. We wouldn't have like people, I just had you know a plumber come over to my house and he had like this whole like excel model for doing <laughs> estimates. It was it was genius. Like right. he he could like he could click something oh, and it yeah. changed something else in in a different sheet and it generated the invoice. It was amazing that business would be less efficient because there's no way th- like this plumber would hire a full-time programmer. So I think like developers have to think of it from that point of view of like how do we get more of the world capturing the the this ability to make software and benefit from it? Because right now literally 0.25% of the world is creating software. Most of us are just consuming it because only, you know, one out of every 400 people is a software developer. Like they can actually create software. And that's a, you know, sometimes I make this analogy of what if everybody could read kind of like what we have right now in terms of literacy rates and everybody is able to access the internet and and like use the software that we create. But what if only one out of every 400 people was empowered to write? Like a you know a story or a book or whatever. That's the disparity of where we are today right now in terms of software creation and software consumption. Imagine if only one out of every four hundred people was writing books. That's where we were four hundred years ago, like pre-Renaissance. You know when the printing press was like still very closely held to the chest and and like governments were sort of saw it as a threat that people would learn how to like spread information via written form. I think we're still in sort of like day 1 of the internet type of time frame when it comes to creating the kinds of things that can take advantage of the kind of connected software and services and products uh, that people can create.
0: All right, totally agree. We could talk about macro trends for a long time, very interesting stuff. I want to talk about the engineering behind what you've built because I've used Webflow there is so much stuff in the interface, but it's performant. That's a rarity. I mean, it's not easy to build a beautiful, highly interactive, single page web application that is performant
1: in a single thread.
0: Yes, exactly. I mean, that's that's JavaScript, right? Like JavaScript has to be single threaded. And it basically feels as response. I mean, maybe it's an exaggeration, but it feels almost as responsive as like an IDE on your computer or on or sketch. How have you kept the performance so high?
1: So to be fair, it's not always that high, especially as you I'm start sure. to build like, <laughs> right. build like really huge sites. So there's okay. a lot we're working on. Honestly, it's it's all constrained by what a browser can do. We definitely push the browser to the to the limit. I think we have one of the most complex in-browser applications in the world, like in terms of trying to essentially build an application inside of, of a browser. But a lot of the performance improvements have come from d- Surely there's a ton of kind of optimizations that we make on our team, but also browsers in general are getting way more performant, right? Like the, the V8, uh, kind of VM, uh, for Chrome and Safari and like Firefox is now getting faster and faster. So. There's sort of the combination of that, of like computers in general feeling faster. It doesn't like Webflow doesn't feel that fast on a really old Chromebook. So there's definitely more, more that we can do. But the, for us, it was a, it's just a limitation of like we had to build it in the browser because our core constraint is just like DevTools or Web Inspector when you open it in Chrome, that that only works when you're working on the real thing. Like it's a true WYSIWYG. It's not a design tool that then gets translated to code. It's essentially DevTools with a cleaner UI. Like you have to work with the real DOM nodes. You have to work with the real like CSS. When you change something, you're actually changing the CSS via the CSS object model. So it's not like a, you know, a approximation of what it's going to look like it's the real thing you're actually like direct manipulating that thing so we had no choice into just kind of going in that in that direction which is why i think a lot of previous things didn't really work. Like iWeb was like an old Apple kind of website builder. They had to build their own sort of like emulation for what a browser renders. But the fact that we run directly in the browser and use the browser's engine and the actual canvas is just an iframe. It's the actual website that's going to get published. That I think we just get the tailwinds of as browsers get faster at rendering web pages, so do our tools. They get faster because of, you know, efficiencies gained through websites getting faster in
0: general. How has the front end changed over time? So you said, for example, you moved from Knockout to React. Was there a point at which you refactored everything to use React?
1: Basically, yep. Knockout was something that when we were first starting to build Webflow in 2012, Angular was already around, jQuery was around, Backbone was around, and Angular was around. And we tried all of them, and they were all too slow except for Knockout. And about, I think it was 2015, we saw just like the entire community around Knockout just kind of die off, I think the main maintainer got a job somewhere else and stopped maintaining it. And there were no, like we were the only major app that was built in Knockout outside of something internal at Microsoft, which was sort of like where, where the main uh, author went, I believe. So it was sort of, the writing was on the wall and we had a really hard time hiring people because nobody knew Knockout. Nobody wanted to work with Knockout at that point, like react was starting to become popular. And like the mental model of react was more appealing, even though it's you know, something new that, that needed to be learned. It was something that a lot of uh, developers really gravitated to. So we almost, I would say had no, I think it's good that we were early enough. Had that exact situation happened now, let's say we were still built a knockout at our scale. Now it would have been much harder to switch. Almost like Facebook was sort of, even though they saw PHP going out of favor over time, they had to kind of like, they had so much stuff built on it that they essentially... Let's double down. Yeah, they doubled (laughs) down and they invented their own like PHP virtual machine or whatever to make it faster. Like they just didn't have the option to, to go switch as unappealing as PHP was sort of like, you know, culturally or whatever among developers. So we had to like we spent a little bit less than a year i think to just do a pretty much a full rewrite and that has been a a major benefit to us over time
0: i interviewed howie from airtable and they actually built their own database and well database but uh also like a javascript front-end thing like they don't use react Mm -hmm. like some custom a custom system i mean are there any performance things where? There's some, like, low-level defaults in React that are giving you performance hits where you're, like... there's
1: a bunch of times we have to eject from React because it's... Or from other types of tools because we have to sort of create a hyper-performant version. So one example is... This isn't React, but there's another kind of engine that that helps take, like, some CSS and turn it into, like, move that, uh, some CSS changes, and make those changes in the style sheet. So we had to invent our own, essentially, like, reconciliation engine that says, here's, like, the old CSS, here's the new CSS, figure out just, like, the core differences between the two, and make those, like, micro changes via CSSOM, so that you're not, like, causing thrash in in the thread, and, like, getting the browser to, like, have to re-render too much. So there's a bunch of times that we have to do that. And there's a lot of examples where, you know, I believe, I forget what it was called, like Atom, the editor that GitHub built where they were using React, but then for like very fine grained things like text editing and selection, they had to like invent their own uh, like hyper performant version just because like there's... React is kind of, uh, and React is taking a lot of steps now with uh, like 16 and they're working on sort of async. They're working on some really sophisticated things to, to improve performance and give like, like fine grained control over like which things get deferred and which things uh, render um, kind of ad- in the next frame. But before that was available or as that becomes more mature, you just have like, very specific problems that just the cookie cutter approach of react just doesn't work it is the simplest one because you have like the simple mental model of like oh whenever sort of the state or props change i just like trust that the reconciler will figure out the differences and and render just make those small changes in in the Dom but sometimes the reconciliation process itself is very expensive in order to figure out what the differences are but if you know what the differences are uh, you can just go make them directly which is sort of like the old school way that we used to do things in like jQuery and whatever like developers had to keep track of all these things like I know this is changing in the UI then go change this so there's Wasn't quite that a few, fun yeah yeah there's quite a few times that you need to eject but that's you know that's software engineering you have to figure out where the bottlenecks are and kind of yeah. Re- in in some cases, reinvent the wheel. Well, not in a bad sense, but you have to like solve that problem in a way that's um, specific to your content. So that's
0: what React Native developers do all day. That's true. <laughs> What's your back-end database? What's your source of truth?
1: We have Node is the primary one. Sorry, not Node. Uh, Mongo. And we have quite a few. The source of truth is actually JSON. So all Webflow applications are actually a graph of different JSON primitives. So like a node, or like a div, for example, is a primitive. A CSS class, we call it a style block, is a primitive. And you actually won't have things like div class equals some class name, and then there's something in the style sheet. There's actually a JSON primitive that says Here's the ID of the style block and all of its CSS properties. And all of those are like a much lower level than CSS. They'll have like tokens for like color values that are specific, uh, specified by a design system or by a designer. And then that all gets compiled into HTML and CSS. But what that allows you to do is makes you enables you to create a graph of dependencies. So as a developer, you'll never go into an HTML file and give every single node an ID right? Because it just like looks noisy, etc. But when all that stuff is behind the scenes in JSON, it actually gives you a lot of power because what developers have to do in their minds around like, here's my component before, you know, I had like this element and I added this wrapper and I added this class and maybe I changed the style. And then they have the old version, what they do is they reconcile those things in their minds as they do like git merge, right? Or if there's a conflict, they have to say like, Oh, I made this change, etc. But when you're doing everything in JSON, and you're doing it atomically, you know exactly change was made to which element, and you treat those as just like operations in a database. right? And you know what those links are between things. Like If you try to delete a class or a style block that has certain styles, you know exactly which nodes connect to it. You know when you move one div from one place to another, you know exactly which one you moved. It doesn't just look to the editor as like, here's some new code. That gets added in this in this place. So like it knows exactly the the history and context of what that what that node was and w- all the data associated with it. So it lets you do things that uh, you basically build an in-memory application graph that says here are and it goes as as deep as like data dependencies. So a lot of times developers keep this in their minds. Like they say, oh, I know the schema of my backend has like these fields or these columns in this database table.
0: So you have like a basically a back end in memory representation and you snapshot that into the database on a regular basis but then your front end is just reading from this in memory thing. Correct. Yes. And that in memory thing you you just have some cool back end model that's constantly like figuring out when to snapshot it and, Pretty much, and, yeah.
1: That's cool. Yeah. The hard part is getting that to be like real time because You might have somebody Uh, working on one, yeah, one person working on one component on the homepage because they're doing a design and then somebody else on like the about page. (laughs) Oh no, you're Google Docs. Yeah, exactly. I forgot about that. But it's even more complicated than Google Docs because Google Docs has, you have the advantage of sort of like doing text comparison. So you have like the context of what intent is with when you're working on like a style sheet that's shared across many different like pages and, you know, dynamic context, you kind of have a lot more like propensity for conflicts Mm. because somebody might be changing a color based on some class, like some button class in a, you know, dynamic list of blog posts. Right. And they like, they think it looks good there, but that same style is used in, in You know a list of uh, blog post authors or something like that or maybe like a list of investments and they might be making a change that is sort of conflicting like doing a different width or padding or whatever so you have to like find ways to reconcile those things and like surface conflicts in real time to sort of like help designers make a different like a choice of which one is the correct one Uh, so there's a bunch of problems that we still need to solve there around essentially having to abstract away Like this act of like committing code into GitHub when you start to or merging code, where you have to start dealing with conflicts when that are happening manually right now to like code review, but we have to like get them to, to happen kind of like live in real time.
0: That sounds not fun.
1: Yeah. To implement. But it's a,
0: it's an important problem to solve. Totally. So you can do like GraphQL stuff too, right? Like if I model, so you have a CMS, so if I build a data model in your CMS, there's like a way to graph a GraphQLize it, right? Yes. So
1: we essentially abstract away GraphQL. Like it's it's involved, but you just don't know it. So whenever you do, and our CMS is essentially like a visual database builder. So you can build relationships like one to many relationships, many to many. Like you can you can say, let's say I wanted to build, you know, your podcast website, and you have an object or a collection called guests and you have a collection called topics and you have a collection called episodes and you have a collection called companies or whatever. And you can start to build relationship between those things. You can say a guest is related to a company and they were on this episode. And this episode has like all these properties of like date, et cetera, like audio file link to iTunes or whatever. So then once you build that, it essentially is a, you create a database schema. And from that you can get a, like a GraphQL uh, endpoint so you can just use graphql to inspect that data and get data out but that's not the most interesting part because there's a, like other kind of like graphql abstractions that that do that i forget their names but like like prisma i think but the the important thing is that now in our visual ui tools you can actually build around that dynamic data. So you drag in something, we call it a collection list, but it's essentially a repeater that's ba- like that's bound to data. And at first it's empty. So it has like, it's almost like an empty GraphQL query, but then you start dropping elements into it. Like let's say I drop an image and that collection list knows the context of the the collection that I'm iterating over. Like let's say I picked podcast episodes. So it'll know the available fields that I've defined before that are relevant to episodes. So it'll say, you know, title, Guest, etc., and a guest is a reference, so it's a like essentially in SQL terms like a foreign key. And as you start to build that UI, we're automatically building a dynamic GraphQL query that says. As you're binding, like behind the scenes, we're writing a GraphQL query, or a essentially the contract of what this component expects to pass down into its props from the backend data source. So the designer, when they're working with, with Webflow, they don't actually know that they're creating a GraphQL query as they design. And it sort of like writes itself as we figure out, okay, so you you only want the podcast like thumbnail and the name right? And a link to its like detail page. Therefore you never have to load the guest, right? Or the guest avatar. But then if you drop another image and you say, this image gets its source from like the podcast guests avatar picture, like my picture, for example, then it automatically does that as a, like a nested, Part of the GraphQL query that says like now I want to load the guest and for the guest I just want to load the avatar image and maybe the name if I want to have that as like a label right next to it. So it's almost like it's doing the same thing that a developer would do with like defining the, the back end data model and then writing the GraphQL query, then writing a React component with Apollo that somehow like colocates the GraphQL query with the the component, but it's all doing it behind the scenes and like kind of abstracted away. None of our, we call them visual developers, they need to know, they don't need to know the implementation details and we can actually swap out Apollo, which we've done in the past to a different provider. Right. And as long as the user experience is the same and the output is the same, like that dynamic data is now loaded on the canvas and then will like actually reflect on the published page. It doesn't even matter to, to people building their like sites and experiences, like how that's all implemented. Like it's an implementation detail.
0: Pretty sweet use typescript
1: not yet we use flow so that was for us a more natural way to get types that didn't require like a full-on change to a different language i know there's like ups and downs to like benefits to flow versus typescript but we've figured out flow for the most part and solved some of the the challenges we had with it so
0: do you have a complicated caching system for the front end also or or like i'm just trying to imagine the data flow in my head right now and and what i'm imagining is you've got a front end that you know you have all the benefits of v8 and the front end is talking to this back end in memory data model representation which i'm sure is is its own really interesting application and then that's periodically getting snapshotted to mongo is there any significant infrastructure in between that browser representation and that in-memory model on the back end.
1: Yeah, we do a bunch of stuff with Redis to like keep things fast. Like as a, uh, as a site is being designed, you actually don't want to go to Mongo a bunch of times. So there's kind of like this middle layer that's much faster that acts as like an intermediate sort of cache.
0: And do you have another in-memory model sitting? So- or I guess that's the browser, right? Yeah, in
1: the browser, we do kind of to a degree sort of like progressive loading. Like we don't load the entire app. So if you're not using a certain part of it, like only when you go there does it load that bundle. Or at least where that bundle doesn't like it's it's cached locally. If that part of the app doesn't change, the next time there's an update to let's say the style editor or whatever, only a smaller portion of of the app has to like reload. But there's a bunch of advantage like there's a bunch of things that we still need to do there to make it even faster. Right now we kind of rely on you having to have a almost brand new machine with a lot of RAM um, and there's just a lot more optimizations we can make there.
0: When I was using Webflow, it was really cool. It kind of required a paradigm shift. Like I was trying to do things in it and I was like, I don't, I don't have an intuition for how this thing works because it's not exactly like an IDE. I mean, it's kind of like sketch, but it's not exactly like, and I'm terrible
1: at sketch also. That's what I meant by mindset shift for like for graphical designers have to understand like the concepts behind the web, things like the box model to really grasp what Webflow, like how to use Webflow. And we almost have to come up with a different name for what Webflow is, like a visual development environment. It's like an IDE, but it's visual. It's almost like what Visual Studio was supposed to be way back in the day in HyperCard. I I do
0: think it's kind of a category creation.
1: Seems pretty novel. Yeah.
0: I, I wouldn't say it's like.
1: Hyper novel because there is a lot of you know, like Power Builder and all these other tools that sort of like saw this as an obvious Step but in those software were all creation.
0: broken promises, right? That's what they boiled down to.
1: Yeah, and I think it's it's sort of unfair to like Say that. Not promises. Yeah. Broken attempts. Yeah, exactly. They I think I think they were just way too early and the web was growing So fast. Hey man, you were too early
0: <laughs> You know, you, yeah. you, you tried it four times. Yeah,
1: exactly But even now, to some degree, we're kind of too early because there's still a lot of like innovation and development, like uh, developers trying to figure out like what is going to stick, what's not going to stick. So a lot of it is a timing, a timing thing. But a lot of it is also because those tools were not able to capture like the kind of go to production readiness of what a developer could do by hand, that's sort of what gave him a bad rap. They would always say, you know, because I created the site in in Dreamweaver or FrontPage, or actually FrontPage is a bad example because it's mostly code-driven, but like Weebly and Wix and whatever, there was a sort of like this... Because the code's not clean and it's not as, you know, performant as what, is, as what a developer would do. That gave a lot of, like, eroded a lot of trust that tools like this could work. So our job right now is to keep sort of, like, pushing that envelope of, like, hey, you can actually do all this stuff, but you can also do it correctly the way that a developer would do it. Um, what's,
0: what's the boundary of possibility today? Like, what what can't you do? What are the things that you wish were possible but are pretty janky?
1: So we like to stick to abstractions that are, you know, we don't invent any primitives on top of CSS, for example. So Webflow is just like... You know, we, we might have like a, you can do radial gradients or background images or whatever, but the same way that you can do them in CSS. So pretty much everything that you can do in CSS, you can already do in Webflow minus a bunch of like properties that aren't ready for prime time yet. So there's a bunch of, you know, like background clip or CSS shapes, like those things are just not like they don't either don't have browser support yet or just not enough demand that people actually use them a lot in insights. Now, we used to have like big gaps, like we didn't do flexbox or we do, didn't do Grid. So you sort of had to rely on these like old school kind of float based layout techniques to do, to rebuild what you could have built in code faster using like, uh, you know, more modern layout technology, but now we're, you know, caught up on those. And in fact, I think a lot more people on an absolute basis will be successful with using the power of CSS grid with tools like Webflow than, you know, just natively through CSS, like the adoption curve of like Flexbox took a long time, like CSS grid is also taking a long time because it's a complex kind of layout, layout tool like Flexbox still needs. I, I know a lot of developers at Webflow who are some of the best developers in the world who have like a cheat sheet for Flexbox open because like the, the syntax is so, you know, hard to remember all the time. And there's like a lot that we don't do on the CMS side, for example, like you, if you had custom code or a custom like code driven CMS, like WordPress, you already have like all the features that WordPress built over the last 15 years. You know, a simple one that I can mention right now is, like, scheduled publishing. We're not building that until, like, December. So you have some of these, like, limitations that we're kind of playing catch up. But for the vast majority of people who are, like, Webflow customers, for them it's the difference of, like, you know, if I went to this other kind of code-based driven approach, I simply can't do it. Like, it's literally the difference between, like, not participating in, in cre- like creation for the web and having like a few small limitations that, that we currently have, but we're like very quickly catching up on. Oh, and like the major, major limitations in moving to beyond websites are things like, you know, in Webflow, you can't create a, you can create a website, right? But you can't, for example, right now do multi right? Because we don't support it yet. So you can't go into without some hacks. I mean, you could you could do these like JavaScript driven kind of translation things, but it's going to take us a while to do like true uh, multi-language. And you can't graduate from like full-on website to full-on application where somebody, let's say you, you were listing like the most popular... I don't know, products or something like that. And all of a sudden you wanted to have an idea to make it more like product hunt, where you can like log in and see things that you uploaded. Like you can't you can't build that with Webflow right now because we don't have this like abstraction of a user account or authentication. We will in the future, but it's sort of like you're kind of limited in the to the web, web design, web publishing uh, space right now for the most part. But the same core primitives of like how you build software, where it's like, you know, the domain or the database and then the UI, and then eventually we'll have like business logic visually. Once you cover all those three, like it's game over. Like you can build almost anything that you can build with software because the vast majority, like you said before, the vast majority of things that developers do today, they're like repeating like almost everyone is building their own like authentication system. Almost everyone is building their own kind of like database and building their own like way of, of building UIs, et cetera, that can like be really, really streamlined where just fewer companies are repeating themselves and they focus on what truly matters, which is like innovation and in they the problem that they're actually solving for customers, not like innovation in like how they do it in the sort of implementation state. And the way to think about that is just like. Just like Amazon AWS, right? That's a simpler problem, but it essentially abstracted away a lot of skills that people used to be proud of, right? And used to be in almost every company. Every company needed to have like a server rack and a farm and like skills around like how do we order and replace hard drives and how, how do we know they're failing? How do we configure RAID? How do we make sure that there's power redundancy and all this stuff? You needed specialized skills at every single startup and every single company to do that. And now all that complexity is behind an API. You essentially like, I want compute power. I want like a place to store stuff. And then Amazon or Google Cloud or Azure or whatever, they take care of that stuff. And I think we'll get to similar sorts of primitives for building like like richer parts of the software development stack. So you don't have to worry about you know, where do I write the code for these react components? How do I deliver them to NPM or how do I deliver them to like this uh, production environment through, you know, continuous integration and continuous delivery or whatever you have designers, uh, like have a living design, living and versionable design systems that developers can pull in. And it's sort of like you have like a hosting infrastructure sort of automatically figured out for that entire piece. So then software development can become more like, I don't know if you've ever used Shopify, everyone used to build their, you know, their e-commerce sites from scratch, right? Like you had, you controlled your like payment gateway, et cetera, et cetera. And now Shopify is essentially like e-commerce as a service. Right. Like they take care of hosting, they take care of payment, like the payments infrastructure. They take care of a lot of compliance stuff. They take it. You essentially bring your product and your design and like their design piece still requires a lot of programming like you have to know how to learn liquid and you know they they have a lot of coding requirements uh which is why when we built our own e-commerce engine it was basically shopify plus our visual development tool so you don't need that piece but webflow can become just like shopify is for you know like The infrastructure for running any like all the things you don't really want to worry about. You just want to worry about your products and your customer experience, and then you just manage that. They take care of everything else. They take care of scale. They take care of like you have a big sale. You don't have to worry about like your servers going down. It's Shopify worrying about like running this at scale. We believe Webflow can get to that that uh, level for like all kinds of web applications, where it's like Heroku on steroids, right? Where you're essentially like declaring what your software looks and functions like, and, and what its data model is, and then you're basically building the things that are very specific to your business, and that's usually things like how you actually solve the problem, what what the application looks and feels and functions like, rather than you know what servers does that it that run on, what's the front end framework, what's the backend framework, etc. You're you're actually worried more about the the true guts, uh, the true like business like value add that your product or service brings, and that becomes. A lot more important, because you you sort of don't worry about the infrastructure.
0: I love it. Why did this problem obsess you? Two
1: things. I saw so many so much frustration with designers having like amazing visions for a product or service and just not being able to make them real. And one of them is my brother, who's my co-founder, who uh, created a product that's very similar to to GoFundMe and Kickstarter. It was called Help Riot, where he wanted to help essentially create these, like, social campaigns, fundraising campaigns around social causes that, you know, like, were underfunded, Mm -hmm. right? And he had the whole thing designed. It was amazing, and he just couldn't find a developer. So, it died. It, like, literally died. So, so that idea, that passion, that everything, like, died with that with his inability to not find a developer or learn how to code. And that's actually the energy we took into creating Webflow. Like, how can we get Sergi, my brother, to be able to create that in the future? What a
0: perfect model application to be thinking about for all those years that you were beating your head against the wall, like, trying to make this work, right? Because it's, like, it ha- it has... A lot of simple things that we can now say as simple nouns crowdfunding or just payments or accounts yeah like you said these simple primitives everybody in the United States knows how these things work knows what they are yeah you can create an account you can remove an account we all grew up with the internet why can't we instantiate these things with the click of a button
1: boom exactly exactly and there's no reason why that shouldn't be possible my daughter right now, her school, her public school has a, uh, these things called focused learning goals, right? Like that's the things where they really want to like learn and grow in a specific area, right? And teacher helps them like kind of move along those goals. And her goal is to keep improving her. She has like this, she used to keep it on a, in a journal in her paper, like weird animal facts. It's essentially like her internal social network that she created with all of her friends like she, <laughs> she collects these facts right. from from her friends and last year like six months There's ago a lot of weird animal facts out yeah there. exactly and it was sort of like how does she get that out into the world like instead of just sharing like her journal with just the friends that she has. And six months ago, like I helped it, like on one of our dates, like we just have these recurring dates. She asked like, hey dad, can you help me create a, a website for like keeping track of these? Awesome. And I taught her these abstractions of like, hey, this, like an animal is an object, right? An animal has a, an effect fact is an object and an animal can have many facts. Uh, so all How of a sudden- How old now, is your daughter? She is 10 right now. She was nine at the time. Okay. So I'm not ta- teaching her a sequel. Right. I'm not teaching her, you know, Mongo i'm not teaching her like my uh, you know kind of like the, how to install a database server i'm teaching her concepts that are like very human and like easy to understand like she understands that relationship she understands essentially like schema modeling from just the relationship between an animal and facts and then she's like what kind of design do you want she sketched it out then we sort of like started to build it and kind of explaining these concepts of like you can't just like drag a box in you have to think about how this is going to appear you know if you have two animal facts stacked side side by side with each other on a larger screen. You have to start thinking about what's going to happen when you see it on a phone. You kind of like, there's not enough room. So you have to get one to push the other one down. Right. And how to like explain those rules to, to Webflow in this case. And now she's like super excited to like share this website with all of her friends and like they, but she's still limited because her friends have to bring facts to her Right. And she has to write them down. And like at home, she has to go log in and go enter them. What if her friends had a form on the website to say, like, submit facts that she can then create? And she already like explained this process to me. Like, I want my friends to send me facts and I want like to approve them. and And I click when I approve them if I think they're funny. And then they go live on the website. Like that's already an application, right? Cause then you have to like log in and authenticate your friends have to create accounts. So you Uh, can't do that yet. You can't do that yet. But already you have like this application of something like kind of like silly and simple, but already it's like the power of software and the power of the internet to like the fact that there's so many of these silly applications means that there's probably a bunch of non-silly things in the middle that are just like waiting to be built. And one analogy I sometimes give is where we kind of are in the world today, like Steve Jobs uh, gave this example many, many years ago of hundred years ago, like the telegraph was the main way that we shared information, right? You had to go to a telegraph operator, And like say hey here's the message i want to send to my friend or whatever then it would sort of like translate to morse code uh goes over the the telegraph wire the operator on the other side sort of like here's the morse code translates it to paper hands it over to the other person right and then the which is fine right like that's those are first step into communication across long distances but then there was a bunch of businesses that were formed around like the commercialization of the telegraph and and the thought process was well, hey, like it's annoying to go to a post office to sort of like rely on them being open. Why don't we bring the telegraph into the home, right? And give people like a manual on how to learn Morse code. That way we remove some of the barrier of like having to walk like through the rain or whatever. But there was still this like, it was missing the forest from the trees around, okay, now we're going to teach everybody to write Morse code right or to like communicate with morse code like tap tap dot whatever that's where we are right now with software development people are saying like oh the 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 way to participate the true way to participate is to learn how to code that's why we have like code.org and we're trying to teach code everywhere i think that's the wrong layer of abstraction it's sort of like saying in order to get into computing you have to learn zeros and ones to to learn how registers work and learn how like the assembly languages like optimize things for certain architectures i think that's totally the wrong abstraction layer the correct abstraction layer to how human community was solved was not the telegraph, not teaching people how to write Morse code, but to solve that same analogous problem with something that's a lot more human compatible, like Alexander Bell and others then created the telephone, which is essentially using an interface people already had and were very uh, like comfortable with, which was their voice. And you could automatically translate your voice into, you know, digital signal or like analog signal at the time and have somebody pick up the phone on the other side and have a conversation. Same actual underlying problem solved in a much more like scalable way that's available, not just to people willing to that already know Morse code or willing to learn it or able to learn it and have access to the ability to learn it, which, you know, to learn code is like, orders of magnitude harder than learning Morse code, right? Because it's not just like 26 letters and like speed and practice. It's like frameworks and concepts, et cetera. That's where we are right now. We have to get people to believe that, yes, it's important to get to build more software because it's so valuable. Like software is eating the world. Like everything we're doing right now is driven by software. Like the program you're probably using, the way we schedule this, the way, you know, the, the websites we visit, etc. The et way I
0: ordered this coffee.
1: There you go, exactly, and that's sort of like the shift I see no code taking us to. To say, how do we get more than twenty million people building software? That. That's how do we why, get a billion people?
0: That's why I have quote fed into the hype as yeah. as I think some listener told me. I don't think it's hype. At I don't all. think so either. I don't think it's hype I don't at think all. So either
1: I think people who are saying it's hype uh, were the similar category of people who are saying the internet was hype.
0: Totally. Okay, so you got to go soon because you're you're building you're you're, you're bridging you're <laughs> bridging we need you to get back to bridging the gap between the hype and reality yeah yeah um so one of the things i found pretty interesting i listened to a couple interviews that you've done and uh, one on design details and the other on uh, this week in startups which i like both those shows this week in startups in particular has been really influential for me and jason's interview with you was awesome there's a couple things you said in those interviews where you kind of alluded to the fact that you couldn't really have built Webflow mm-hmm. if you hadn't gone through this, I don't know if it was like nine months or it was some period where you were just working relentlessly yeah. and you, were, you got the kind of flow state. I'm yeah, yeah. familiar with this. I mean, the early days of software engineering daily, I, it's not like I was doing, I wasn't building Webflow, mm-hmm. but like I was... just only working only only working basically and i loved it like i couldn't i couldn't have been happier but it was like i look back and like and i imagine how i was working relative to my like personal life and like loved ones and stuff it's just devastation yeah just like
1: there's no way it's unsustainable you can't like you can only do it for a season we had to do it out of desperation like you literally didn't have money and income and it was like this is Just the sheer amount of work that needed to be done and the time available to do it or the resources, like the people available to do it, it was just two of us or three of us at some point. So there was just no other choice. And right, like that, but that was our choice individually. And we had to get like our partners and our families. Like I had two kids at the time. We had to get our families to buy into that. You did that up front? Yeah. And know that it's a season. Well, actually you did that up front for like three months and then had to keep extending. But I personally couldn't do it for like more than a year. It was just getting very very close to burnout if not like true burnout the key difference like right like a lot of times you hear this sort of like hustle culture where like people expect everyone at their company to work that way and sort of like devote their lives <laughs> to. I think that's the a totally different kind of thing. Like when you're individually working on something that you're super passionate about and you're the one buying into that, that's a totally different thing than the expectation from an employer to work that way. And I think employers who expect their uh, teams to work that way in in a way that is just like, very kind of like singularly focused. You're not focusing on your health. You're not like spending any time with your family. They're not going to build foundationally like lasting teams. They're not going to build like cultures that can like innovate and, you know, inspire others so, to join. So, what's
0: funny, I worked at Amazon for eight months. Amazon gets this out of people, but incidentally. So, Amazon paints a picture of like a brilliant, fantastic future. And it's inspiring enough that some people actually work yeah. that hard, sometimes to their detriment, sometimes not. But yeah, it could work. It could work. It just
1: did, like to me personally it just wouldn't feel good No,
0: well, all I'm saying is they don't like those perceptions that in that you read about at like the, that New York Times article about like People the cripple, crying at their desk or it's whatever. It's not really like it's not like that like that is a down I mean, it's weird because uh, the culture develops where where you see a lot of people doing that and some people get the impression that That like that is how they have to work. It's actually not how you have to work at Amazon. Like, Amazon's totally realistic about the fact that, right. yeah, these people aren't capturing 99.9% of the upside, like right. you and your co, while well, you're in your cover, you know, you'd raise some money at that point. But anyway, it's 11. I think you got to go. But I found those admissions, to be honest. And yeah, I mean, I think like that flow state's satisfying.
1: Yeah, it is definitely. So that's one of the things I miss about coding, just like being in that kind of building mode.
0: Inbox doesn't do it for you?
1: Nope not at all. <laughs> I mean, there's different, there's different layers of satisfaction now, right? Like when you empower your team to like build a lot more things in parallel and you're there to like support them, to hire more people, to like augment, like help them be successful. That's a whole different level of satisfaction because you get to see what they build collectively, which is way more than, than I could personally build, you know, getting into even 24 hours of flow state, right? Like, even if I could do that, it's just the physically impossible to, innovate that much, as much as a team that's well-empowered, has autonomy, has like a level of ownership where they understand kind of like what they're building towards and and have the sense of purpose of like why what they're building is important. You get way, way more, like you make a bigger dent in the universe than like what you can do individually. I mean, and that's kind of the definition of, of teams, right? Like the reason we form teams is that we can do more together. Not because like, you know, we want other people like carry our water or something like that, not to make our burden easier. Sometimes that's the case. Like it's, you know, when you're literally working like crazy, it's good to like have another person come in for reinforcements. But the reason teams form is because we like draw on the strengths of others that we don't have. And together, like you, you end up building something that's much greater than you can build just by yourself. So for me, that trade-off has been like really satisfying, even though I don't get to code pretty much at all these days.
0: Vlad, thanks for coming on the show. It's been awesome. Of
1: course. Got it, I really enjoyed it.